I'm glad in Pastor Jake's introduction of me, I'm not a special guest anymore. <laughs> I've, been here, I've been here long enough. I'm a little bit of a regular now, so I'm glad about that. So again, I wish you all a good morning, and I just invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 13. Um, we'll be reading from verses 9 to 25 this morning, and that will be the focus of our sermon time today. So I'll just give you all a moment to find it. Give myself a moment to find it. And when you have it, could you please stand for the reading of God's Word? the ESV version. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is a fruit of, our li a fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he, if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greeting. Grace be with you all. Grace be with all of you. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord God, that you may bless our time in your word today. That, Lord God, when we hear your word, that we may have obedient and attentive ears to hear what you have to say through your word today. That, Lord God, as we look at your word and look at Christ, Lord, let us see him as matchless, as superior, as sufficient for all things in our lives in regards to salvation. And, Father, in our time in your word today, Lord, let us lift your name very high. And that as we exalt your son, as we look and see how great he is, we may be 
together worshiping you, Lord God, and honoring you. Please help us, Lord God, that the time of your word today may, may reveal and show in our hearts a desire to live sacrificial lives unto you. And that your name may be praised, Lord, in our, in our very moving and breathing and living, Lord God. Let this time be profitable, as any time in your word always is. May your name be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So today will be our last sermon from the book of Hebrews, where ultimately we've seen uh, a group of Jewish uh, Christians. We've seen the exhortation to Jewish Christians that Jesus is superior to all and everything that Judaism has to offer. The revelation from him is superior. He is greater than Moses. He is a better high priest who could sympathize with the weakness and oversaw a better and new covenant where God himself transformed the mind and the heart of those who would be his people. And he provided a better sacrifice, his own body, a single sacrifice that fully satisfied the sin debt owed to a holy God. But why did all this need to be said to these Jewish Christians? Why? Why was all this ink and parchment spent to pen, um, as we've read in our text at the end, this uh, brief exhortation or this urgent message? As we look at the ending of this book, we have to look at one of the earlier warnings that the Jewish Christians received from the author found in Hebrews 2. After knowing that the message was received from the Son and that it was superior to the message received by angels, they were told, um, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels provided a reliable Sorry, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or obedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by God, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That was found in Hebrews 2 verse 1 to 2. So the issue for the Jewish Christians was that they're being tempted to go back to Judaism because of social pressure or societal pressure. Were they ostracized? Were they not accepted by a people group, the Jewish people that they left from or by the Roman society at large? Right. Like Judaism was a little bit more accepted than than Christianity was at the time. Whatever the situation was, the solution for some was to leave the faith and to return to Judaism to reduce the pressure that they were under. So they were looking at how to solve a situation now and right away by neglecting what was greater for them. Yeah, so they they chose to solve a problem by rejecting what was, sorry, excuse me, they chose to solve a problem by looking at what's now an expedient, what was a quick and easy solution, by neglecting what was more of more benefit now and for the future. So something greater was being viewed as lesser to quickly get them through the current situation they were in that day. So just even seeing how they're choosing that solution, to choose the now and right away, the quick solution versus trusting in what was now and what would benefit them in the future, doesn't that sometimes seem very human to us? That sometimes when we handle difficulties, there are here and now solutions that we take on that neglect what may be 
better for us in the long run. So specifically talking about faith and church life, many times we see wonderful examples of, of those who go through turmoil or difficulty, um, and it brings about a great faith and a trust in the Lord in, in new and wonderful ways. We heard from Sharon this morning, give her testimony, you know, and we, we constantly always see the testimony of Margaret Murray when we see her come and her faithfulness towards the Lord. We see that in her difficulty, we're seeing a great witness and testimony. But the other side, we see the other side as well, that difficulties, whether sickness or, or a strained relationship in fellowship or at home, uh, a difficult teaching or submission to gospel authority, turns us away um, from what is greater now and for the future to what may be lesser now and just gets us out of the trouble right away. So what I mean here is that sometimes we turn away from the good testimony of what scripture prescribes to us, right? To get us to a situation now, to resolve a situation now that just alleviates us of all the bother and gets us, gets it out of the way for us. So that is a temptation that we all face to solve issues now and right away. Betraying and revealing in our hearts that we're tempted to say something is greater than, you know, in our situation in the church, something is greater than Christ, right? Just to solve that situation. Whether it be the alleviation of pain or the acceptance of peers or peace within life, we may name the name of Christ here, but we would be sadly mistaken to think if the temptation to neglect Christ and our great salvation would not knock at our door and affect our trusting wholly in the salvation he's provided. So the contrast about Judaism within this book not only speaks about um, different religious systems, this system is better than this, Christianity is better than Judaism, just so it doesn't only speak about that, but it ultimately points towards what our hope is in. So we see the comparison between Christ and everything within Judaism. This book goes about systematically, you know, dismantling the perceived security of turning away from Christ for salvation to something else where there is no salvation. So this test um, also applies to, so excuse me, sorry, this, this, church, this text doesn't only apply to, the book of Hebrews doesn't only apply to churches suffering persecution in China, you know, that are under social pressure to, to conform to a communist regime, being imprisoned, battered, and bruised. But we should note that the testimony of Scripture, that for the Christians then, many difficulties can turn into doubt and desertion. So revealing an unbelieving heart. And that's what's happening, because they're going through all these difficulties, and then they decide to turn towards Judaism, and they just reveal that they didn't really trust in the Lord. It was hard for them, then and there, and it became hard for them to continue forward. It led some to say, is this Christian life really worth it? Is Christ enough? Is there an easier way for us to go? These questions lead to neglect of salvation, to make things better now. And that neglect of salvation leads to making something that is inferior greater than what really is. So when we hear this text today addressing and contrasting the inferiority of, of salvation found in anything but Christ, we should look to hear the same message to us that Christ is superior to anything we may desire to put our hope in. So the message to them and to us is hold to the unequal sacrifice of Christ and embrace the sacrificial life that comes with it. To flesh this out, 
I have four points that I want us to talk about today addressed in Hebrews 13. So the four points are, one, see Christ's sacrifice as unequaled. That's in verses 9 to 12. Point two, expect reproach and make sacrifices to God, verses 13 to 16. Hold to the steadfast teaching for our souls, verses 17 to 19. And do God's will through Christ, verses 20 to 25. So that is, see Christ's sacrifices unequaled, expect reproach and make sacrifices to God, hold to the steadfast teaching for our souls, and do God's will through Christ. So let's look at our first point today in verse 9, if you look in your text, that we should see Christ's sacrifice as unequaled. So verse 9 reads, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So leading into chapter 13, just for a little context, the end of chapter 12 stated to these Jewish Christians that they were to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So when we get into chapter 13 that we're going to look at today, we see that the first eight verses speak to what offerings to God actually look like. So when we get to verse 9, the author stating this command, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, it reflects a major concern for these Jewish Christians that they not neglect the great salvation that they had received. The reason stated for this command is that it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by food. That's why they're not to go to all these strange teachings. So what is in mind here with, um, what is in mind here is that it questions what ultimately benefits us. Is it the acknowledgement of grace that we receive from, from Christ through God or from God through Christ? Or like Judaism and other religions, did dietary restrictions make you feel worth it? Oh, you didn't eat this? Oh, be confident. You're good. Oh, did you, did you eat this thing? Oh, you can be confident. You're clean. Like in Judaism, you had clean foods, unclean foods, right? So the text is saying that being strengthened by grace is better than being depending on foods because they ultimately do not benefit those devoted to them. There's no security there. There's no hope there. Even when the Jewish Christian audience was hearing this, it is a call for them to, to look to the grace that Christ gives. So, but after making this point of comparison, the author did not want to really stay there. That's, he didn't want to stay there. There is a greater point the author wanted to make to them. This leads us to talk about the uniqueness of being strengthened by grace and how that is even possible. So look with me at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That sounds really weird, right? Like we have an altar. Like if you think about everything you've read in scripture, have you heard like, okay, an altar being brought up like in terms of like Christianity per se about Christ really? Um, not really. It sounds really weird. What is the altar this author is actually talking about in comparison, in comparing Judaism and Christianity? What's in view here is talking about sin offerings, right? They were made in the Old Testament and only, and they're made in the Old Testament, but only Jesus' sacrifice was the one that took away sins, showing why it was folly for the Jewish Christians to even to go back and to return to Judaism. 
In Hebrews 10, verse 11 to 13, it says, And every priest stands daily at his servant at his service, offering repeated and same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So the single sacrifice of Christ, fully satisfied and, and, and paid this for sin, that could, um, excuse me, that the single sacrifice of Christ fully satisfied the payment of sin that had to be made. But its uniqueness is unequal that no one can share in it. Just that, even that last little part, the last statement in verse 10, it puts a little jab in there towards Judaism or the old sacrificial system that they always had to make daily, that within this great salvation that they received, you know, no one else can kind of partake of that. So the benefit for the priests back in the day for sin offerings is that they could eat the leftovers from the altar when they made sin offerings, right? That was a provision from the Lord for them. That was their portion. They didn't get any land, like the Levites. The Levite priests didn't get any land. What they got was the leftovers from the, the sacrifices. But what the author is saying to the um, is that the Old Testament priests have no privileges here, and there's no benefit for them in the unique and equal altar of Christ. So we have an altar as Christians that no one else can partake of and no one else is benefited from. Right? So it excludes those who serve in the tent, the tabernacle, the temple. So it's saying that, yeah, there's no benefit for them there. So what, like the logic kind of is like, why are you going back there where they're not going to get anything from this? Right? So, so this leads to verse 11 and 12 of our chapter and why this is important that we have this altar. And why there's no benefit for those priests that may that were making sacrifices of old and our altar is superior. Verses 11 and 12 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So reminiscent, I know we're talking a lot about the Old Testament, reminiscent of of Animals being sacrificed for sin offerings, what they used to do is that they used to take them outside and burn them afterward. And this pointed towards Jesus suffering for uh, his people so that they would be sanctified or set apart for himself. It was effective. His sacrifice was to bring a people to himself. That's why we cherish this altar, this sacrifice that Jesus made. It was made so that we can be brought to ourselves. Imagine that message to those Jewish Christians. The sacrifice that was made was made to bring you close to God. Right, Hebrews ten ten says to the Jewish Christians and to and to us, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the one blessing that we enjoy as Christians because of Christ's sacrifice. We are set apart for the Lord as holy, and there is a future for us with Him. Ephesians says, "Blessed be the God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him." That's a verse I, I love that that verse because it talks about the blessings that we we know of now, but also a future hope that we will share one day is that we will be before the Lord, holy and blameless, set apart for Him. That's a beautiful thing. And that's also what's being brought across in our text today. So as we look back at our text, it is like the author is saying, Jesus has done it all so that his people would be sanctified. Don't go back. Don't bother. 
all of it has been accomplished already. So what it comes down, so what it comes down to is this, is that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient and superior. That's the, the, the main point at the end of the day. There's nothing that can be added. No one can approach it. No one can gain anything from it that has not been given by Christ already. Christ's sacrifice was holding, um, Christ's sacrifice was was wholly superior to everything else that they would have experienced going back to Judaism. So holding to the unequal sacrifice of Christ is seeing that nothing approaches that sacrifice made on our behalf to bring us closer to him. Don't make lesser things cause you to neglect this great salvation. So like I've seen like with um, going through school when I was in college, I've seen with previous Christian friends that ended up not being believers that something lesser always encroaches on the sufficiency and superiority of Christ. So I remember one friend that I uh, went to college with, We, it's funny, I'd always bump into him once every year, and we just always kind of catch up. How's everything going? We went to high school together. How's everything going? School's good. This is good. Still serving the Lord. Break. He goes back to his life. I go back to my life. But with him, I remember over the course of a couple of years that the first year we would we talk with each other. We talk about Christ. We we uh, talk about how great Christ was and and just salvation and Christianity and everything like that. And and then the next year, you know, we talk about Christ and he talked about stuff that's going on with him at with with school. He became a like a president of a, of a council and stuff like that. And that started to like take up a lot of his time and and a lot of social issues started to come up and stuff like that. And then eventually that those social issues started to become the thing that was on his mind all the time until eventually like with my friend, he actually did convert to, to Islam afterward. Um, but there was some social things that were, that, that Islam answered for him that, um, that, that were priorities in his own heart. Right. So reflecting on that now, my conversations with him, something other than Christ consumed his heart and, and you have to ask if Christ consumed his heart at all, you know, if that can be crowded out. So the admonition of scripture should be a fitting reminder to us all that it says like in Hebrews 3, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Just part of even our responsibility towards one another is, is to preach the gospel to one another, to make sure that Christ is at the forefront of our hearts. So to live sacrificially is to keep Christ's sacrifice out in front of you as totally unique, unequal, and sufficient. But if that is the case, it calls us to our second point today of what it looks like to live sacrificially, that we are to expect reproach and to make sacrifices to God. So look with me at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The author is calling them to live sacrificial lives that see Christ's sacrifice and suffering was on their behalf and embrace the life that comes with it. The Christian life will be like the one we follow. It will be like who we follow. Like I'm remembering like um, John 15, 20 to 21. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they obeyed me to my teaching, they'll obey yours. They'll treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So just even in verse 13, just even seeing that therefore statement, 
let us now, if Christ has made the sacrifice for us, let us go outside and join him in this reproach. It's saying, we're going to have to be like our master. So what does this look like for you? Do you take Christ's sacrifice seriously? Does it cause you to lessen other items that you may place security in? Does it look like just you just being very honest about uh, what you did on the weekend when you go to work? They don't know the name of, of the Lord that you serve, but if you say you go to church, do people look at you a little bit funny or, or view you a little bit lesser? You know, does it look like with your family? You know, where you can just only just stay in the casual, common experience that you all have, but not approach any spiritual topics. And when you do, you may be kind of, maybe I don't want to invite this guy as much anymore. Does it look like that for you? Like I said earlier, that this text is not just only talking about and only applicable to churches that are suffering persecution abroad. But the heart of it is who do we view as highest within our own heart and just all the little ways that we may have to bear the reproach because of that. So the gospel points to a future hope that we seek to be with the Lord. Excuse me, I missed a point. But um, let's look at verse 14 and why bearing Christ's reproach is worth it. So for we have no, for here, we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. So like with those examples I said, you know, those slight inconveniences or even those people who are suffering uh, persecution, you know, it just reveals that we don't have actually a hope here. The gospel actually points to a future hope that we seek to be with God and that our hopes are, are for a better life with him. The Old Testament saints, even through um, the testimony of Hebrews, looked for a city to come whose builder and designer was God. The promise of the new covenant is that we will be with the Lord in heaven. The reason why this is stated to them is that they, they understand that they're not tied to earthly things, security here, but constrained to look forward for a future glory with Christ. This is the way to encourage them to turn their eyes towards eternity. In looking forward, while we wait, bearing the reproach that comes with following Christ, we are also to offer sacrifices to Christ as we wait for this future glory. Verses 15 and 16. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we see before, we see, okay, bear the reproach, but the other side is, is shown, offer sacrifices. It's basically like, Take the licks, but still try to honor the Lord. <laughs> but through Christ, what do these sacrifices actually look like? What is a life character characterized? Um, this life is characterized by lips that still praise and acknowledge God, is consistent in doing good, and shares what you have. Truly embracing the sacrifice of Christ breeds a sort of life of God-pleasing offerings. And those are examples here. Lips that always praise and acknowledge him. It's consistent in wanting to do good. Like it's like, um, and, and shares what you have. Remember Romans 12, where it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The sufficiency of the Son 
drives us to join him in his reproach as well as to continually praise him. And that as we give our bodies over to him, laying down our lives for him, that is a sweet-smelling savior to the Lord that we serve. So we've seen the author's exhortation to these Jewish Christians to see Christ's sacrifice as a new goal. And some of what it looks like to live sacrificially. So sacrificial living means to bear the reproach that comes with Christ and to continue to offer sacrifices through Christ. But it does not stop there. As we move into our third point today, verses 17 to 19, it is also to hold to the steadfast teaching for our souls. So verse 17, if you can look with me. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So when we read the words obey, uh, obey and submit, especially when it relates to any sort of human being, I know that there's a temptation of some to shudder. I remember last year when I talked about uh, the church and the government, and I thought it was just going to be this easy sermon. It's so clear. It just says, oh, Pay attention to the government, and it's, a, it's an authority that God's established, and you're good, right? But I found that my conversations surrounding that topic, um, there's a lot of heavy skepticism. There's a lot of distrust of any sort of establishment, whether because of headlines, personal experiences, or horror stories, and, and, and they're valid. And to a certain degree, yeah, like we all see abuses of authority and establishments all over the place. And sometimes thinking the worst case scenario is, is prudent in the protection of those who may be vulnerable. I grant you that. But my hope would be in, in that our discussing of this point, that God's purpose and good in this command to these Christians makes its way to us as well. That we don't just look at the situations that face us around in life and then interpret scripture that way. But look at what God has intended with scripture to be said to us and then we interpret the other situations you know, in light of that. So why would the author give this command? Was it simply for order or his need to keep the, the troops in line since some Christians were leaving, right? That was an issue that they're facing. He wanted to set up a sort of author, authoritarian structure for these Christians. So to deal with actually many of our fears and our genuine concerns regarding this sort of authority uh, promoted in scripture, we have to look first at what God's given purpose is for it. So that our holy God perfectly has our good in mind. And that relates to the leaders that we actually have in the church as well, too. So we should remember that this letter was written to Jewish Christians tempted to neglect their salvation because of their adversity. A message that had been delivered by the Lord to those who actually heard and that it was attested to them. So when we read, for they keep watch over, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account in verse 17, we should see leaders being there to keep watch over your souls, <laughs> right? That this is nothing more than that. They, they keep watch over your souls. But also, what is a better way, like consider it this way, what is a better way to keep watch over your souls than to keep true to the word that was given to you? Because that was the word that was given and attested to them by apostles, to, to everyone. What better way to keep watch over your souls than with the gospel. The leaders are there for the benefit of your souls. Do you think of leaders like this, that they're here to help you stay consistent with the word that's been given to you? That they are a means of grace for your very souls to keep you in the truth and to help you hold to the truth. 
We live in a very individualistic age where either experience or the ease of gaining information makes it easy to look at ourselves as the only one who steers our ship. Or could it be um, our individualism within our your faith leads you to say, I know if I'm right with God, then it doesn't matter what other people have to say. But is that the testimony of scripture when we see this command here? Yes, when we come to the Lord, it is a, it may be a very it, it's an individual experience, but we're called to a mutual beneficial relationship as Christians, namely the church. So personally, I'm becoming even more convinced that a lackluster church life means, you know, which I'm meaning interacting regularly with believers spiritually within a local church is neglecting a, a, a means of continuous growth in Christ. And I've seen it from, from many examples, even, you know, even the example of my friend that I brought up before. Leaders are commended here for their benefit to the congregation. Do we view leaders as a means of grace? Salvation isn't an individual activity, but one that, um, but one that strength and vitality are found in Christian community. That is such a countercultural message to our age right now. Any, any stage of life. We are always pushed to be individualistic. We're always pushed to just have everything locked down ourselves. The message was brought to them and the leaders are there to be sure that they are, the, the message is continually to be heard. So talking about pastors, there's um, a preacher in the, in, in the States. Well, he lived in the States, Lemuel Hayes. He was the first African-American uh, pastor of an all white congregation. Speaking of pastors, what he used to say is that uh, the work of the gospel minister is not to be temporal, but with spiritual concerns of men. They watch for souls. Their conversation is not worldly, uh, of worldly affairs, but about things that relate to Christ's kingdom, which involve the everlasting concern of men's souls. So God uses leaders, whether pastors, elders, teachers, deacons, as a means to preserve souls in, in general. That's just reflected in that quote right there, speaking about pastors. Are we convinced of that? There is a reminder for leaders to be diligent about the souls within the church and the urging of everyone in the church not to make it too hard <laughs> uh, to, to, to that process to happen. Because the neglecting of it would be the neglecting of a means of grace that would benefit everyone. So if we are all on the same page and have clarity about leaders and, and understanding that even leaders within the church, they help to maintain, you know, the message that has been preached. We can walk mutually together, caring for one another. And as leaders and leaders in the church, they can be diligent in the work of watching souls. So, but this brings up an interesting um, issue with verse 17 and the command to obey and submit to leaders. And I want to bring this up when I was thinking about this. The issue isn't if you should be obey this command, right? The issue isn't if you should, if you should obey this command, but the issue is, can you obey this command? Because how can you obey this command outside of a mutual understanding of who's being led and, and, and who is the leader? How do we know there is submission to godly authority, this verse uh, commands in your Christian life? How do you know that? That is the reason why, you know, formal membership in a local church is important. Right? Because verse, because of verses like this. It helps you to be obedient to these sorts of commands in scripture. 
and helps leaders to be obedient as well, that they know specifically which souls are underneath their care and who they should be making sure they're going to be giving account for. So in the command is a thought, is the thought to continue in the faith once for all given to the saints. The author, probably a leader as well, at the very least a teacher, depends on this community as well too. Like hence the request in verse 18 to 19, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The author wanted to continue in his work with them. He wanted to be there because he had a clear conscience about what they were doing. It was right. Wouldn't it follow that um, they wanted to, that continued work to happen amongst themselves and have him restored to them? Do you pray for your the work of the pastors and leaders within your church? We should be a people that cherish faithful passing of the word that came from the apostles that we see through scripture. We should be people who desire to see that pass along onto us and that work continue. If we do not cherish that, we may have to consider, are we sabotaging our faith? Because it says here that leaders are here for the, they're watching over your souls and it'd be of no advantage if the, the work is hard for them. Right? So let's not do that. But let's hold to the unequaled sacrifice of Christ and embrace the sacrificial life that comes from it. So we've seen what sacrificial life looks like. We see that we have to see that Christ's sacrifice is unequal. We have to expect reproach and continue to make um, sacrifices to God. And, and we have to hold fast and steadfast teaching for our very own souls. And what that looks like is that we, we desire to submit and obey to our leaders and we keep them in prayer. So our last point this morning, found in the benediction, which is a blessing, and the final readings, we will see the point do you do God's will through Christ? So verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may be that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is a blessing. So what we see here is what the author ultimately wants for this congregation, these, this body of believers that are tempted to neglect the salvation that was provided for them by looking um, at the difficulties they face here and now. He wants them to be equipped with everything good that they may be able to do God's will. That's what he desires for them. So sacrificial living means to do God's will and to please him with your life. Our lives are totally handed over to him. The reason for this is that um, because of the glorious reason of the benediction, that the God of peace, the one who ultimately benefits them, raised Jesus from the dead. And this Jesus, who is he? He is their great shepherd who brought them close by the blood of the eternal covenant. Their relationship with God has been changed for all eternity because they trust in Christ. That is the reason, that's the, 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 the reason behind why they should uh, desire to do his will. And this is why he has this brief exhortation to them in verse 22 with this benediction, this blessing he wants to give them. He wants them to continue to please God, lifting up Christ. Because of this aim, this truth, the author wants them, he wants to see these Jewish Christians. He wants to come back to them and see them to continue this work. It's because of this aim that he hoped if Timothy got out of prison or got released from whatever he was doing, 
in verse 23, he could come and, and join and exhort them as well, too, toward that end. They desired to not neglect what was given to them. And because and, and that became the lens and hope for these Jewish Christians. So the message of this book hits us and has us have to say, yes, Christ is superior to, to, to Judaism. Yes, of course. But is Jesus superior to all the problems that we may face? The afflictions, the turmoil of the here and now. Do those problems of this life cause you to pull back from Christ, giving, not giving him his just glory? to find salvation or peace someplace else. If we do not see Christ as superior, that temptation will face us all. It'll come knocking on our door. Because it won't be the obvious, like another religion, that may be the thing that draws us away. It can be just as simple as, you know, I want to make sure that I'm comfortable. I want to make sure everything's all right. And those are the, the little knocks at the door that cause us to look other places than looking at Christ as unequal. We are to hold to the unequal sacrifice of Christ, and there, and there is a sacrifice in life that we have to embrace. There is a cross to bear in that whatever, in whether we are abroad in persecution or the subtle and sometimes more dangerous comfort and or busyness of life or familiarity with life can cause us to neglect to see how great this salvation that God, the God of peace, has provided for us by raising from the dead our great Lord, the shepherd of us, by bringing us into right relationship with him. So my encouragement to you as I go is let us remember that we hold to this unequal sacrifice by seeing Christ's sacrifice as unequal, as expecting reproach and making sacrifices to God, holding to the steadfast teaching for our own souls and aiming to do God's will through Christ. May that lead us to higher praise of our Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time within your word and just even just the simple act of us looking at your word. Let our the desires of our heart be to lift you so high. And that as we look into your word, we may see even more fully how great and how, how, how equal and how matchless uh, uh, Christ is. And as we lift him up very high in our hearts and within our lives, Lord God, that that may lead us to lives that are sacrificially given over to him, desiring to praise him in all that we do. That Yes, we worship together now in hearing your word preached, Lord God, but that it may not stop here, but it may lead into every facet of our lives that we face, whether at home with our families and loved ones, whether at work or with colleagues, or whether just even errands are running throughout the day. Let our desire to hold you as matchless and as unequaled within our hearts, Lord God, affect all that we do, that we may live uh, obedient and sacrificial lives, giving all glory and honor to you. Thank you, Lord, for the time in your word today. And may we as your people continue to grow to cherish you all the more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.